Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. Um, uh, this is a time when we pause to consider the special role of our mothers play in our, play in our, li play in our lives. To honor them, to express our thankfulness to them and for them. Um, but I'd like to draw a little wider net this morning. Um, ever since our small group started to do the uh, Bible Fast Forward last fall, I've been kind of um, obsessed with these puzzle pieces. Uh, you know, the way a lot of people understand their faith, and it's not just Christians, um, but they have pieces. They, ha they have this piece, that piece. So if you're a Christian, maybe you know about Noah and the Ark or David and Abraham and uh, the Apostle John, but sometimes we don't see how the pieces fit together. Um, and I love uh, sermons. I think they're great. And I've sat under several uh, very good pastors, including our current pastor. Um, but, you know, by their, own, by their nature, sermons are short. They're snapshots. They tend to give you just one piece. So they don't really give you any more than that. Um, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to maybe connect a few pieces now, that might sound like um, it's going to take a long time, and it could, and I don't have another service after this one, but, um, but no, I'm going to try to keep it short. I was pretty successful <laughs> in the early service, so, um, but anyway, if you can bring up the first slide, so engineers love flow charts, and I've got mine, it's kind of a roadmap for the message here on this, this opening slide, and it starts with the creation, right in the beginning. So God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. So all people get their value from being created in God's image. Uh, then shortly thereafter, um, God instituted the human institution of marriage. Uh, he, brought, he created a woman from Adam's rib and brought her to the man, and he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Um, so marriage brings man and woman together in a uh, one flesh union, people that are suitable to each other. And only then can motherhood, the birthing and raising of children, find its fullest flower. So I've got, this is actually one of the scriptures we're going to talk about this morning, or a piece of it. It's from Proverbs 31. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her. So if we go to the next slide, I'm going to open with a... Um, kind of an overview of the scriptural view of women and mothers. So um, in Hebrew culture, the mother's the female parent in the Hebrew family, and the mother normally occupied a higher position than what was enjoyed by women in many other nations. Um, the mother's duties were primarily domestic, but she was held in high regard by her family in Hebrew society. And I just want to cite a few examples in both the Old and New Testament that kind of points to the value that the Bible gives to women. So if we look at the Old Testament first, uh, there are several occasions where women occupied leading public positions. Moses' sister Miriam was a prophetess. Uh, Deborah, in the book of Judges, was a prophetess and a judge of Israel, so she actually led Israel through one of those crisis periods they went through. Um, among the patriarchs, so here we're talking about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, women, especially mothers, occupied a prominent place. For example, if you read the uh, account of when Isaac and Rebekah got married, Rebekah's mother seemed to have an equal or even greater say in what was going on than, than Rebekah's father and brother did. So that's an example. And then if we look at the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law in Exodus 20, uh, the law places children under the obligation to honor both their fathers and their mothers. 
It doesn't show partiality one to the other. Um, now, when we get to the New Testament, the birth of Christ uh, lifted motherhood to its highest uh, possible plane and idealized it. Um, several women supported Jesus during the years of his public ministry. You can read that. For example, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, who pastor spoke about not that long ago, they were two of the people that would minister to Jesus, you know, basically provide food, shelter. Um, and there were other women as well. Um, the, the, uh, the last thing that Jesus did on the cross was to bestow his mother on the beloved disciple John. So he made sure that his mother was going was gonna to have somebody to watch over her after he was gone. Um, and then uh, Paul identifies several women as fellow workers in Christ in Romans. Um, now the footnote, which you can't read from where you're sitting... <laughs> Uh, mentions an, an important distinction that we need to make. Now, we know for, that in first century Palestine, even in Hebrew civic culture, women did not have the same place as men. They were not held in the same regard. But the point that I want to make is that that's not because of the scriptural teaching. It's in spite of the scriptural teaching. I mean, the Bible has a high view of women. In fact, in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon told of a Hindu woman who said to a missionary, surely your Bible was written by a woman. Why, he asked, because it says so many kind things for women. Um, in addition to what's shown on this slide, uh, the Bible also compares God's involvement in our lives to the role that mothers play in their, human mothers play in their children's lives. So, for example, a mother's comfort in Genesis 24, 67, Isaiah 66, 13. A mother's watchful care in Psalm 131, 2 and 3. Isaiah 49, 15, and 16, and Matthew 23, 37. And then the value of a mother's teaching in Proverbs 1, 8, and 2 Timothy 1, 5. And even Jesus, if you read the account of um, when he got separated from his parents when they went to Jerusalem to do the Passover, you know, they were kind of traveling in a family caravan when they left. They figured Jesus was there somewhere. Well, it turns out a couple days later he wasn't. They had to go back and look for him, and they found him in the temple. Well, after that, it says that Jesus, well, he, was, he submitted himself to his parents. So he followed the law. He gave honor to his father and mother. Even he, the Lord incarnate, you know, submitted himself to his father and mother. Uh, so if we can go to the next slide, I want to talk a little bit about what anchors this, this high view. And this is where we start following the roadmap that was kind of hinted at in the um, in the first, in that cover slide. So the first and primary anchor for the treatment of all people, including women, is their being made in the image of God. And I've got the two passages from Genesis, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and Genesis 2, 7. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in... Um, in uh, verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or soul. And one thing that I find interesting when you read the creation account throughout mostly the first chapter of Genesis is when God creates something, he says, God, it says, and God said, let there be light, and God said, and God said, and it was so. Um, now, when it came to man, God said, but that wasn't enough. When we get to chapter 2, we see that God breathed. That, so man is the only being to which God imparts some, some measure of himself. You know, people are made in God's image. We are similar to him in certain ways. Uh, for example, his moral nature. You know, the Bible calls God righteous. Well, righteousness 
and unrighteousness are moral categories. Humans are moral beings as well. Um, and the way that we, um, you know, th this image of God entails the notion we are like God in some significant way, and we represent him when we go about our daily business. Um, and the way that this primarily is expressed is both through human capabilities, uh, for, like reason, for example. There are certain things that people seem to be able to do that when you look at other parts of the creation, other animals, they don't have that capability. And it's not just a difference in, in degree, it's a difference in kind. Um, and then the second way is human virtue. And we'll be talking a little bit later about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, but in Leviticus 11.45, which is repeated in 1 Peter 1.16, God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we, we image God in our capabilities that are specific, that are, seem to be above that of any other part of the created order, and by our virtues, the way that we can actually make true moral choices. The second can be found in that first human institution established by God, which is marriage. Uh, so the second point here, we've got um, the quote from, uh, from Genesis 2. If you read the account, it also says, and when God did something, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was very good. But we get to come to chapter 2, and there's something that's not good. Um, and God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for or co corresponding to him. And we'll, that will come back a little bit later. Um, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air, sky and to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, or man in Hebrew, there was not found a helper suitable for or corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept, and he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man and the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this is the passage that Jesus cited when he was asked about divorce in the New Testament. Uh, that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother uh, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So in marriage, the marriage bond unites men and women in a co-equal partnership. They are complementary, compatible, suitable, corresponding to one another. They complete one another the one flesh, it's a, it's a very literal completion, in fact, um, that they correspond to one another, which is the literal translation of suitable, is interesting. Um, and this is where I want to broaden the net a little bit. Only a virtuous man is worthy of a virtuous woman. So if we can go on to the next slide, I'm going to talk about, start talking about uh, virtuous, a virtuous woman, the pattern that the Bible lays out. Um, in Hebrew, in, uh, in um, Proverbs 31, uh, verses 10 to 31, uh, Lemuel's mother, Lemuel is how King Solomon refers to himself in this passage, um, suggests a model for a virtuous woman, brave, strong, and good. So I'm going to read this text, and then the next, the next slide will kind of unpack verse by verse a little bit. Um, but I'm going to start at the end of that first line. An excellent wife who can find... For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands or palms with delight or willingly. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household 
and portions or prescribed tasks to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings or the fruit of her palms, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand or spreads her palms out to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes them garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and she, the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but it is a woman who fears the Lord. She shall be praised. Give her the product or fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. So we already saw in an earlier slide that at the time this was written, um, women's were, women primarily did domestic tasks. So what I want to do on the, in this next slide is I want to unpack some of the general principles that are you know, in this, these uh, 22 verses. Um, so we start with verse 10, that an excellent wife is, or a virtuous wife is a rare treasure worth being sought after. Her husband can have implicit confidence in her, so he knows that she's kinda ha she kind of has his back. She has his interests at heart. Um, she will do her husband good at all times in sickness, adversity, and old age. So it's not just for a season. It's a lifetime commitment. She works willingly, so she doesn't have to be, be prodded, but she steps forward uh, to do the things that she's asked to do. Uh, from the produce of her industry, she cares for her household. She is, she is diligent in every duty with the fear of the Lord as the basis of all. She is wise, considering or counting the cost, whether a thing is worth the price and can be afforded, so not impulsive. Um, she puts all her might into what she undertakes, into all of her active services. She perceives the happy fruits of her industry, so she rises early and works late. That is, she recognizes the value of her work, of hard work. Um, She's not overly concerned with personal adornment, but with ministering to the good of her household. And her industry is not merely for herself, but she, go, she uses it to help the poor as well. Um, she's not afraid of the cold, for her household are clothed with scarlet. Now, scarlet in this verse is a metaphor for warmth and beauty. Uh, she provides uh, for ornament as well as necessity, so she can dress up, she can dress down. She always does what's appropriate in, the, in whatever circumstance she's in. Um, she adds to her husband's reputation. He has a discreet companion in her by whose conversation he is improved. So her husband's public face not only reflects on his character, but it reflects on the character of the wife that he has. It sh kind of shines through. Um, she produces more than enough so that the excess can be sold to others. Strength of mind and honor are her clothing. Besides amiability, so just speaking nice, she speaks the word of God, the source of true kindness. So she tells people the truth. 
Um, she looks after her household, not about others' affairs. So she's not a busybody. And when, when I read that verse, I was thinking about Renee likes to watch, uh, my wife likes to watch uh, the old Bewitched television show. And if you've ever watched that, there's this lady across the street that's always looking through the blinds and, you know, trying to catch them and something, something's going on over there and I don't know what it is and I'm going to figure out, I'm going to figure it out. Um, well, she's, the, the virtuous woman isn't like that. <laughs> um, okay, her mature children bless her for her training. So a lot of times as children, we don't see the value of our parents' teaching, but the virtuous woman will be praised by her adult children because they recognize and are thankful for the way that she brought them up. Um, her husband praises her in public. So he's not ashamed of his wife. He's thankful for his wife. He recognizes that partnership that he has um, and then all the value that she brings to help him. And so he's thankful and he praises her in public. Um, she has true beauty in that she fears the Lord. And her virtue is the public praise of all. So that is, you know, by her, the way she lives her life, her neighbors, friends, people around her see that and they, they give her compliment. They compliment her on that uh, because of her virtue. You know, so that, that's the, this is from the Old Testament, like I said. You know, this is a, you know, kind of a pattern for a virtuous woman. And like I said, I want to draw a wider net. So in the next slide, we're going to talk about a virtuous man because not just anybody is worthy of a woman like that. But only virtuous men are worthy of virtuous women. Um, so since men and women are helpers that correspond to one another, only a virtuous man is worthy. And this, kind of, this is the kind of woman he will seek to marry. And once married, he will take responsibility for his wife's well-being, well um, including spiritual. So he'll be actively contribute to her continued pursuit of virtue. So I'm going to read the first two verses on this slide. The first one is from Psalm. It says, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And then in uh, Ephesians, is actually five, not four. It says, husbands, love your wives, as, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Now kind of implicit in both of these verses is the husband's responsibility to see to his wife's spiritual development and her pursuit of virtue. In the first uh, reference in Psalm, it says, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Well, vines need to be tended. You know, they're not weeds that seem to poke up wherever you don't want them. Vines need to be tended. Um, and then in the Ephesians passage, he says, uh, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. Now, he, now that verse is actually talking about the way Christ uh, sanctifies the church. But, the, but in, by implication, since the Bible also teaches that man is the spiritual head of the household, um, Man has responsibility to sanctify his wife, to see to her spiritual development, to see to her spiritual good, to, see th to help her pursue the virtue that we talked about on another slide. The last two uh, references, the first is from Colossians, husbands, love your wives, do not be embittered against them. And then in 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands in the same way live with your wives as an understand, 
in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, that your prayers will not be hindered. And I know whenever we talk about um, mothers and fathers and husbands and wives, um, you know, a lot, you know, some is tongue-in-cheek, tongue but, you know, that, that the Bible teaches that man is the head of the house like Christ is the head of the church. Um, but I want to uh, make an important distinction, because uh, a lot of people make a lot of hay over that. Um, but it, it's important to keep in mind when considering uh, men and women in a family situation that there's a difference between offices and roles and values and virtue. So men and women do play different roles in a marriage and in a family. They have different offices. Um, but they are both, because they're made in the image of God, they are infinitely valuable. And they both should pursue virtue as part of their uh, seeking to be holy as God is holy. Um, and the, the parallel I want to draw is in the Trinity, the Son, Jesus, is a co-equal person in the Trinity, in the Godhead. However, in his role or his office as Son, he willingly submits himself to his Father. So he's not forced to do it. And God isn't greater than the Son. Jesus submits to his Father because that's his office, that's his role in the Trinity, or part of his role. And it's the same thing in a family situation. Um, so, it, continuing to draw that net, let's move on to the next slide. What I want to basically boil it down to is that um, virtuous mothers, wives, women, virtuous fathers, husbands, men, um, are first and foremost virtuous human persons. So, we pursue virtue, and that means we pursue the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit. So, here I've got this... Uh, quote from Galatians chapter 5, which says, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurities, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, um, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, distensions, factions or heresies, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the bullet points I have below here are little snippets from the, uh, the commentary that I, that I was using when I looked at this verse. So the opening words when he says, but I say, uh, he says that, that what I mean is this, he's saying. Walk in the Spirit as your governing principle or rule, and the little phrase that he put was, the best way to keep tares out of a bushel is to fill it with wheat. And, of course, that's kind of a reference to the parable of the tares and the wheat that Jesus gave where the master sends his servants out to sow wheat, and in the night some enemy comes and he sows weeds, tares that look like wheat when they're young plants, to ruin the harvest. Um, the best, course, more modern-day analogy I can give is when we lived in Connecticut, a guy came to the church and spoke, um, and he was talking about when, they, when you age wine, apparently they leave an opening in the barrel so that the impurities can rise to the top and come out so that all is, that is left when the aging process is done is what makes the wine good. And so if we fill up our lives with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc., there won't be room for immorality and dissensions and envyings and strifes. Um, and this is what it all kind of boils down to, this whole thing. 
I mean, we're, we're, it's Mother's Day, and we want, so I wanted to talk about you know, virtuous women and virtuous mothers, but it goes beyond that because mothers are wives first, women's first, and humans first. So it goes all the way back up. The ultimate template for a virtuous person, whether male or female, is that we each seek to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our life. If we are true followers or disciples of Christ, we will emulate his character. Um, you know, I didn't go through the rest of these. Okay, let me hit the, the, uh, the rest of the bullet points real quick. Okay, the, the second thing is fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, some people talk about fruits of the Spirit, but fruit is singular. It's not plural because they form one organic whole springing from the one Spirit of the one true God. Um, the results of the flesh are not dignified by the name fruit. They are only works. So if we look at the particular fruit, love, the first one, is the first and last of the band of graces. And here he's referring to 1 Corinthians 13, where in verse 13 it says, um, now, uh, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Joy, in Philippians 4.4, 4, is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So it's a, a, like a deep, um, it's a rejoicing... Um, in the Lord in every circumstance. It's kind of a deep abiding contentment. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness is a surface thing. It's an emotion. It's a feeling, and it changes. But joy is a deep, you know, kind of a deep-seated commitment, I mean, deep-seated contentment with, because God is in control, and he does all things well. Um, peace as a fruit of the Spirit is a, as opposed to hatred or variance. Gentleness, I like this word, it's a benignity. It's not a word you hear very often. But if you go to the doctor and they do a biopsy and it comes back benign, that's good news because benign things don't hurt you. <laughs> they don't hurt people. So, you know, benignity is kind, you're kind and conciliatory to others. You're not out to get somebody or out to hurt somebody. Um, faith, faithfulness, or faithfulness is as opposed to heresies. That is faith in God's promises and loving trust toward men, trustfulness, I actually like the word trust better than faith. That's actually the word that gets translated faith in the New Testament often actually means trust. And I kind of like that better because it seems like in our culture, whenever you use the word faith, people insert this little phrase beforehand, blind leap of. And it's not. When you, you, know, when you trust in something, you trust in it because you think it's, you know, you, you have, you think it's worth putting your weight on. You're not going to put your weight on something you don't think is going to hold you. So we trust in God. Um, you know, it isn't a blind leap. Uh, meekness is submissiveness of spirit towards God and man, and temperance, self-restraint as to one's own desires. That is the ability or the looking to put others first. Um, you know, Jesus, when he did the Last Supper with the disciples, he washed the feet, you know. And, I mean, he was the master. You know, they didn't quite get it at that point even that he was, that he was God, even with all that happened, they really didn't come to a full realization of that later after he, he rose. But, you know, and he says, you know, if you call me Lord and Master and I wash your feet, then you should wash one another's feet. So we need to put our, our in, interests secondary. God is first. And put others above ourselves. Um, and what I'd like to do, you know, and basically that's what discipleship is. We're, we're followers, followers of Christ. We're disciples. It was common practice in I don't know, I guess ancient times. I think it, it extended farther than that. But for people to apprentice or disciple themselves to somebody they thought was virtuous. And the idea was you live with this person, you spend time with this person, you learn the virtues that they have so you can become like them. And in Ephesians 5.1 it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. 
Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And what I'd like to read now is um, just a little piece of something that um, I, th I think is great. It's actually, you can find it in the, um, you know, in collections of the writings of the early church fathers. It's actually a letter, a portion of a letter from basically just a lay person, a lay Christian, or average churchgoer um, near the end of the first century. Um, and he's writing to an acquaintance of his. Um, it's called the letter of Methodus to Diognetus. Um, but it provides a good insight into how Christianity was lived out by people who claimed the name of Christ in that first century. And you have to remember, for the first three centuries of Christianity, um, Christianity was illegal. It was illegal to be a Christian. Um, you could actually be sentenced to death. You could be killed for that. Um, but here's what he writes. I think this is interesting. Uh, for Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them is as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Now, that sounds very kind of prescient for our age, but, I mean, in, in this time and before, um, uh, killing of infants by exposure was really common, and it was mostly female infants because they couldn't carry the family, the family name. Uh, but Christians don't do that. They don't, they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. So I thought that was a really good picture of how first century Christians lived their lives. Um, and I think it's a good, that would be good for us to follow. I mean, we're, uh, we are adherents to the same faith that that person had. So if we move to our next steps on the next slide. Um, so even though the focus this weekend is on mothers, uh, the virtue and value of mothers, um, I think this message has a little something for everyone. So I start out with, you know, we're all members of the human family. So we need to try and pursue biblical virtue as evidenced through constantly maturing of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Um, as a child, which again all of us are, and I don't mean you know like a little kid, I mean a person who is born of parents, which we all are, 
Um, honor your father and mother, as Exodus 20 uh, commands, with special emphasis on your mothers this weekend. Um, by the way that you treat them, they're still alive. Express your thankfulness for them and to them. Pray for them. Spend time with them. Allow them to share in your life to the extent that they are willing. Some aren't as willing as others. Um, but it's kind of a, you know, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men, that kind of thing. Um, if your biological parents are not living, I offer a suggestion here that you might consider. Um, you might consider identifying a virtuous older man or woman in the church, especially if they maybe don't have any children of their own that are nearby. Uh, they're kind of alone. Um, and kind of treat them as a surrogate parent. Um, you can learn from their virtue. Again, I'm talking about that discipleship. You know, people who have gone before us, who have faced things that we never have, and have overcome those things, um, are good role models. We can learn from them. And share your life with them, uh, you know, as much as you're able. Then, getting a little more specific, as husbands and fathers, uh, fear the Lord. We need to take responsibility for our wives' well-being. That's physical, emotional, and spiritual. We need to be the spiritual leaders of our home and contribute actively to the development of our wife's pursuit of virtue. So we need to build them up in that area. Because if we tear them down, it's like tying a lead weight to your feet. Right? You know, you kind of like spiting your hand, cutting off your hand. It just doesn't pay. Um, give her honor and praise and live amicably with her. And as a wife and mother, Again, fear the Lord. That's why I'm saying this all, if we, if we pursue the fruit of the Spirit, man or woman, husband or wife, father or mother, all these virtuous things that we talked about in the other, the other slides will come through because they're all kind of subsumed in the, in the fruit of the Spirit. But as a wife and mother, fear the Lord. Seek to be virtuous and be a strong support to your husband. And remember um, James 1, 5 and 6, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him but he must ask in faith without any doubting and I like to uh, point out you know one of the whole purposes of when Christ came and was crucified um, when he paid the price when it was finished when the price was paid the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom so God tore the veil now that veil was what separated the Jews from the, pre the actual presence of God and the high priest could only go in once a year to make a sacrifice, and they would tie a rope to his ankle with bells and, and gourds with seeds so they could hear if he stopped moving around, if God struck him dead because he wasn't worthy, so they could yank him out. Well, what God was saying is that you don't have to go through a high priest anymore. You can come right to me directly and ask for my help. You know, bring things directly to me. So when we face struggles, as we all will, in this or any other uh, you know, endeavor related to our Christian faith, we can go to God. We can ask for His help. We can ask for wisdom. So I just pray as you go and celebrate with your mothers, or you celebrate in whatever way you celebrate this Mother's Day, that as we, as you live your life, as we all live our lives, that we will uh, take these things to heart. You know, the Scripture is is um, also portrayed as a mirror, where we look in it and we don't usually see a lot of things we like. It shows all our faults. Um, and we've got two options. One is we just turn around and walk away and say, well, I can't see it anymore, so it's gone. But, the, but what we need to do is we need to look in the mirror and, you know, tuck some things in, fix our hair if you've got some. Um, you know, and don't, don't forget the image that you saw in the mirror. Try to conform to uh, the image of Christ. So if, if the worship team would come back up, we'll do our, our final song.